0: Okay, Nehemiah chapter 3. Look at these these first couple of verses here. I'm going to try to tie some things together here, and then I have a slide that I want to show you guys just because it's it's so cool. Nehemiah chapter 3 begins in verse 1 saying, And then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. And they consecrated it, and they set its doors, and they consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, and as far as the tower of, Han- of Hananel. So, just beginning with this, this, this opening verse here, um, I want to show you guys a slide. I have a few slides that I want to show you this morning. This, this one is just for fun. And then the next two slides, are to, they're intended to get to your heart. So pay attention closely. This, this first one, this is the temple. And so we know the story of what's going on here. Israel has been, the, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And they were there for a number of decades, about 70 years. And then they were released to go back and to rebuild the temple, the Temple Mount, rebuild the wall. And Ezra started that work, and now Nehemiah is continuing it, and specifically he's focusing on the wall around the city, which in the ancient times was very important to have a strong wall. And it says here in chapter three, verse one, and chapter three is just a list of names of people who are unified together for a single work, and that work is is putting the wall back together. And so it says that he started in the Sheep Gate. Now the first service, and right now currently, I drink coffee when I talk with people. My hand's shaking, so I'm gonna try to keep this straight. I bought a new laser pointer because my wife made fun of my first one. So this one's not as, not as bright and obnoxious as the last one, but I love it, I can't let it go. So the Sheep Gate is up here in the north, right there. And it says in chapter three, verse one, that they started in the Sheep Gate. And then if you follow along through chapter three, every time something is named, they went from this place and they built this place, they went to Tower of the Hundred and then they built the, rebuilt the Tower of Hananel. If you follow that on this map, they're working clock, counterclockwise around the city. The, the Sheep Gate is here in the top north and then they go just to the left of that, to the Tower of the Hundred and just to the left of that, the Tower of Hananel and then the Fish Gate and down and down and down they go to the Dung Gate, which is down here in the very south corner, and I I found out that the Dung Gate is appropriately named because it is the gate for the city dump. So that's just sort sort of cool. It's just cool to see what the Bible is describing in real time. I mean, you can Google this stuff. It's just rad that what we see in this, in this ancient writing is still here today. So it just kind of gives you this, this feeling like this, is really, this really happened. These people really existed. And this is a map of what they did. They started in the north and they worked their way counterclockwise around the city. And if you take a look in chapter three, the very last verse in, thir- in, cha- in verse 32, it says, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So the people came together, and they unified themselves. They worked. They worked together as a family. They worked together as one, counterclockwise around. They started at the sheep gate. They went all the way around the city, and they ended again at the sheep gate. They finished their work. They finished what they had set out to do. And that's important because, as we're going to see this morning, as we look further into chapter four, that any time the people of the Lord set out to do something, any time you you set out to to seek the Lord. Anytime that, I mean, even something as simple as just opening up your Bible for your own private morning devotions or planting a church or doing any sort of evangelism or outreach in the city, the devil is going to be there every step of the way. You set out to do something and the devil is going to be there in the midst trying to cause distraction. He's going to try to undermine you. He's going to try to make you feel silly. He's going to try to make you feel like your work is not important, that it is ineffective and that it ultimately is going to fail and Nehemiah is no exception. Him and his crew run into sarcasm and to mockery every step of the way and it was true for Ezra it's true for Nehemiah and so we'll, we'll, we'll rope chapter 3 back in near the end but for now let's look at chapter 4 starting in verse 1 and so now when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall he was angry and he was greatly enraged And he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heap of this rubbish that has been burned? Mockery and sarcasm from the very get-go. And and so, so just before I show you the next two slides, I want us to think about this. Nehemiah has been commissioned to do something, to rebuild the walls of this great city that has fallen in in, in the midst of the temple being rebuilt and in the midst of Ezra uh, teaching the Torah again, this reestablishment, this work of the Lord. And these, these guys come up to him, Sambalat and Tobiah, and they start ridiculing him. They start making fun of him. They start trying to discredit him. And they point at his wall. This is interesting. Uh, in chapter, or in verse 3, Tobiah, right there with Simbalat, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up upon this wall, that will break it down. If a fox hops up on this wall, the wall will fall. Fox isn't a big animal. What Tobiah is obviously trying to say is this thing's a joke. This is really what you've set out to do. This is, do you think that this is of any substance, any significance? Whatsoever and and is this not the way that the devil can operate the devil can rear his head in this multitude of ways He can do it with just your own inner monologue He can do it with the circumstances around you He can convince you he can try to convince you that you are insignificant that you serve a God who is Dead or impotent and that you're wasting your time and he will do the the most I mean he's so cunning in the way that he does this and so with with that in mind the, the, the world and their power. I mean, look at who Sambalat is talking to. It says that he jeered at them, and he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria. Your translation might say people of, of wealth. The army of Samaria, people with power, people with wealth, people with influence, people that are impressive. Sambalat is making fun of Nehemiah and his workers for this wall that they're building. And I want us to look at the wall that he built because it's been archaeologically dug up. But before we look at it, I want us to look at, I want us to look at another wall. So this is the western wall. You can go there today. It's still standing. Uh, it's It's amazing. This is just, this is just so, part of this is so cool and part of it is so convicting at the same time. At the lowest level where you see uh, these men and women gathered to pray, this section of the wall is is part of the Herodian wall. It's the time of Herod. This is the New Testament wall. This is the section of wall that Jesus would have walked around. He would have seen these stones, maybe leaned up against them, hung out there, and they're still there to this day. And if you look at these walls, so the magic pointer again, right up to about here, this line about here, if you notice, and I don't know if if this is, picture is big enough for you to see, but the stones are kind of rectangle shaped, they're, they're long, they're about this tall, and they're long. This is the Herodian portion of the wall. At just above that, this section right here, uh, the stones are a little bit more square. This is from a later time period. They're, they're still, they're 90 degrees. They're set in place. It's very intentional. It's obviously very precise and, and perfect. The stones are old, but they would have been just sheer. It's, it's, it's reported that the walls were cut to such a preci- in such a precise manner that as big as they are, whenever they sat on top of each other, you couldn't get a, a, a piece of paper in between them. It was that finely worked. It was that professional. Above this, this is the Ottoman uh, period wall up here. These are smaller. They're square not quite as impressive, but still there's some uniformity there. You can tell that somebody designed this. There was some thinking that went behind it. This is this is the, the wall at the time. So below, below this is the, and I, I, didn't, I couldn't get a picture of this. I know somebody who has pictures of it because they went there personally, uh, and I saw, the, I saw the photos, but below the ground level here is portions of the wall from the temple that Solomon built. And those stones are so big. They're, some of them are 41 feet long. They're 20 feet tall. They're massive. They're impressive. And it just speaks to the empire that built the wall. Lots of money, lots of manpower, lots of resources, lots of capability. Very impressive. Babylon, the Babylonians come in, They destroy the wall, they destroy the city, and Nehemiah shows up to rebuild the wall, and all all he's got to work with is rubble. And Tobiah points out, you know, if a fox jumped on this wall, it would keel over. And we think, well, maybe he's being a little bit hyperbolic, maybe he's trying to be funny, he's definitely being sarcastic and mean. Well, they dug up a portion of Nehemiah's wall, look at this. It looks like a riverbed. It doesn't look like there is hardly any thought that went into it at all. And I'm not trying to diss on Nehemiah. He could only do what he could with what he had. But these are small stones. A lot of them are just sort of thrown on top of each other. He was working with the rubble that was left over. Not as impressive. Not as much manpower. Not as much money. Not as much time. And so imagine building this. Imagine the history, the generations that came before you and how impressive they were and the walls that they built and the money and the power that they had. And then Nehemiah, this hot-headed man, shows up with his ragtag team, unified, but ragtag. They're coming coming out of exile, and this is the wall that he builds. And Sambalat and Tobias show up, and they say, yeah, right, dude. And you can't really blame them. They kind of have a point, right? And part of the point is that as followers of Jesus, it's, I mean, it's like you can look around and think we're really in over our head. I mean, humanity is in over our head. Nobody's getting out of here alive. And everybody's trying to grab onto something, some sort of belief, some sort of structure, something to build up, something to identify with. And the Lord God Almighty is working through Nehemiah in power and, in, and, in, and, and really in precision. But what Nehemiah has to work with to the world, it doesn't look impressive. And this speaks to so many things in our lives. And I, I told the, the, first, the first service, I, I, I didn't prepare for this sermon in, in the way that I usually prepare for a sermon. I, 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 spent, I spent much more time in conversation with other people about it, and, and, I, and I prayed a lot over it, because this, this general idea that the Lord uses the weak to confound, the weak and the foolish to confound the wise, that's that's something that i mean you could apply that to your own personal life whatever it is that you're going through right now and i don't know what that is you can be looking at the circumstances you can be looking at this pile of rubble and go if a fox jumped on this it would keel over what is this look at look at the influence of other people look at the money they have look at the comfort they have look at the lives they have look at look at the city of portland Look at how hard it is. Look at how anti-Christian it is. I'm a Christian in the city of Portland, and it feels like it's a lost cause. They don't care about the Lord. They don't care about the Bible. They don't care about God and his law or sin or anything. They don't care. And we're outnumbered. It's no secret. You, can, you could point to so many different things and apply this sort of idea but what I what I want to drive back to again and again and again this morning as we consider this chapter in Nehemiah is that ultimately Jesus has no competition he has none and the bible is chock full of examples of men and women being humbled being given humble circumstances being given humble means but the, but the point is that the lord works through those people powerfully Epically he works through them. And the glory goes to God, not to human ingenuity, not to our prowess, not to our money, not to our walls, not to anything like that. So Sambalat shows up and he points out, this is a joke, Nehemiah. And the thing is, is that aside from the Lord, you know, he's absolutely true. It's it's that's it's a, that's that's absolutely accurate. Look at this wall compared to the walls of the past. If a fox jumped on this, it would fall down. And so the devil tries to discredit. The devil tries to take all of your heart, all of your ambition, and destroy it. And it is at least a little bit effective on Nehemiah, at least briefly. Verse 4 He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. <laughs> it's so easy, and, I, and, I, and I, I fall into this all the time. And, and you know, I, I really got a sense of this when we did, a couple months back when we did our, our week of fasting and prayer, we met here morning, noon, and evening uh, People would meet in the back, they would pray, and we, people were just sharing our hearts. And over and over and over again, in, in, a, in a multitude of ways, very, very, uh, a lot of variants, but people were talking and sharing about how their heart has been calloused, and they've got this bad attitude towards the city of Portland. Specifically, the city of Portland. We live here, we pay taxes here, we raise our children here, and the city is really difficult in a number of ways. Politically, socially, there's things that are really troubling. Crime has risen. And, and what, was, what was the common thread through all of the sharing is people saying, I'm getting a calloused, hard heart, and I don't want to. But here it is. And they confess that. And that's really the right thing to do is to confess it among the brothers and the sisters in the church as part of moving away from it. But Nehemiah here, takes he, he falls for it. He's, he's angry. He actually prays, do not let their sins be blotted out from your sight <laughs> turn back their taunt on their own heads it's so easy to have that attitude of lord sick them. get them get our enemies use your power to demonstrate some sort of righteous anger against them because they've provoked you to anger because they are sinners because they're rebellious. And friends, I, I fall into that. I, I've confessed that here from the pulpit. I, I am susceptible to that. Not just Portland, but all sorts of things. I aggravate my heart, and I get, I get this attitude of, Lord, just could you just do me a solid on this one? You know, I just want you to kind of teach that guy a lesson. He deserves it, and the Lord brings it right back. He's like, well, Ian, what do you deserve? Is my, my grace is sufficient. You need to, we need to pray for our enemies. We need to pray for those who persecute us. That's what Jesus, that's what Jesus calls us to do. As I was reading through this text, the, the, the first story that came to mind, I read these verses, and immediately what popped into my head was a story from 2 Samuel chapter 16. David is on the run. His son Absalom is, is, is out to kill him and David has, has fled Jerusalem and he comes to a city and there is a man named Shimei or, or Shemai, depending on how you, how you say his name, but he comes out and he's angry with David and he starts throwing dust at David and he starts throwing stones at David and he says to him, you are a worthless man of blood. And the evil that you have perpetuated has now come back upon you. And this is why David is fleeing for his life. Because the, the evil that he has done, the blood that he has shed is coming back on top of him. He's getting what he deserves, this man is saying. David, you should get what you deserve, you man of blood, you worthless fellow. And one of David's men, kind of a guy like me, maybe a guy like you, taps David on the shoulder and he says to David, this man is a dog. You're gonna let this dog talk to you like that? Let me run down there and chop his head off. And David says, shush. David says this. He says, perhaps Yahweh will see my affliction and return good for this man's cursing. And I love that. I want that. We talked about this a little bit whenever we covered 2 Kings some weeks ago, that this little girl had every reason to be angry At this man who literally was holding her as a slave and yet she showed him grace by leading him to the prophet who was able to heal him of his leprosy. I want to be that kind of guy. I want to look at, yeah, it's not popular to be a Christian in Portland. There's no getting around that. That's just true. It's not popular. It's not accepted. You know, I was just, I was talking about this earlier just a few minutes ago. I was reading in the book of Esther this morning. You know, this is fascinating because this is, this is true for us. This is the book of Esther and it's true for us today. Um... Haman is running around and, he, and, and he, he's mad at the Jews. He's mad at Mordecai and he's mad at the Jewish people and he says to the king, among every nation that you have here, every demographic, every tribe, there's that one nation, the Jews. And because of their law, they don't fit in and we need to get rid of them. And he actually puts forth a legal document to have all of the Jews killed which backfires on him, but that's for a different time, a different story, a different book of the Bible. But the point is, is that even back then, they're like, the people that are of Yahweh, the people that are following the Lord, they just don't fit in. It was true then and it's true now. And it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to look at the walls of the temple of the world and to look at, you know, and we've got these little, we've got these, we've got a book, you know, and, and sometimes we're, you're sitting in your room by yourself at five o'clock in the morning, try to have a private devotion, just you and the Lord, and the devil creeps in and he says, This is such a joke. What are you doing? Look around. Wake up. This isn't working. You're a fool and you're on a fool's errand. Do you feel that way? Now, I don't get that from the outside all that much. I get a lot of, you know, I get indifference. People hear that I'm a pastor and they typically just change the subject. They don't wanna talk about it. But from the inside, from my own inner hate monologue, oh, oh, I have it for breakfast. You know, I can talk myself out of anything. And friends, I wanna encourage us Away from that, the Lord is working. Jesus has no competition. This is just the reality of living in a fallen world. It can feel like a lost cause. It can feel like Portland hates us and there's no hope. It can feel like we're uh, <laughs> we're polishing brass on the Titanic. The ship is going to sink. The leprosy is too deep. We might as well move on. It can feel like that, and the devil wants us to believe so. But Nehemiah built that wall. It was not impressive to the world's eyes, but the Lord was working with and through Nehemiah. He is working with and through us today. And I pray against a a heart of cynicism in my own life. And I pray against a heart of cynicism in the city of Portland and the church, national and international. That we would remember to love our enemies, that we would remember to pray for those who persecute us, that we wouldn't be given over to malevolence and even just frustration and anger. So Nehemiah steps into that a little bit. <laughs> Don't blot out their sin, hold it against them. And so verse six, and so we, we built the wall and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Sobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it. You know, what this says to me among many things, but one for sure is that this interference, this, this uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, they come against Nehemiah and his workers and it's just yammer at first. But then it escalates. They get organized. They, they get together a group of people with them the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashtodites, they, they the, the, the pressure and the mocking escalates beyond mocking. Now there's actually a movement. Now there's actually a force of men that are coming against Nehemiah to stop him, to interfere with what it is that he's doing. No longer is, is Sambalat and his crew just interested in making Nehemiah feel insignificant or foolish. Now they're actually coming against him to stop him with force. And verse 9 says, and we prayed. I don't know if there's human words sufficient enough to describe how important prayer is. And how easy, man, how easy it is to ignore it. And we are called, man, we're called to work. But we're called to, to pray and work while we work and while we pray. And we pray to our God and we set our guard as a protection against them day and night. So I love this. In, in verse 6, he says, so we built the wall. In verse 9, he says, and we prayed. And we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. There is a commission. There is a work. There are There are dentists in our midst who are going to foreign countries to help. There's people who dig wells. There's people who build orphanages. There's people who hold sick babies. There's people who lead Bible studies and prayer groups and ministries all around the world. There is work to be done. And from the outside perspective, you know, None of the big organizations are doing that. Bezos isn't doing it. Elon Musk isn't doing it. There's all these corporations. There's all these multi-billion dollar people and companies that are doing all sorts of stuff and it's easy to look at them and go, you know, they're the ones that are really doing something. We don't have that. We don't have those resources. We don't have that power. We don't have that influence. I don't know how many followers she has, but Nicki Minaj has probably got what? Something of like 20 million followers on Instagram and pastors in Portland have six. Like, Well, good in one way, for, I'm stoked about that, but it can just be so easy to feel insignificant. It can be so easy to feel like we're being passed by and nothing that we're doing is of any consequence. Friends, the Lord is fighting for you. Work and pray, work and pray. Work and pray, and we have to pray, because all of these feelings and so many more are gonna rise up, the devil is gonna to try to interfere with us. The, word, the Lord is fighting for us, he, he prays. And he's, he's, he's going forth daringly. I mean, now his life is at risk, and he continues to do the work. They continue to do the work. So, all this outside influence, all these voices, All of this chatter all of this activity all of this all of this pressure and all of this movement that is causing friction that is trying to stop Nehemiah from what he's doing to build what admittedly looks like a very silly little wall what what is he doing what is he saving what is he protecting this is what he's really dedicating his life to all of that's coming from the outside but there's even a struggle from the inside verse 10 in Judah In Judah itself, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies have said, they will not know nor will they see until we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at the time, the Jews who lived, this is their own, their, own, their own people, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. Hatred and animosity coming from the outside and doubt and fear coming from the inside. This is discouragement within the family. And friends, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly how to address this because it's such a broad issue but but one thing that I've one thing that I've seen one thing specifically is and and, and it's one thing that I have felt very uh, poignantly very strongly is the is the <laughs> like the, the shout to the pastors and the ministers and the Bible study leaders and the evangelists in Portland and say abort <laughs> it's not working this is a failure the leprosy is too deep. The, the cause is lost. We have failed. Let's abort and move to Idaho, to Arizona, to Texas, all the places where people are moving because it's quiet. There's less crime. There's less political agenda that's being pushed down our throats one way or the other. We just want to live and raise our kids in, in schools where we can trust what's being taught. So let's get out of Portland. Let's leave. Let's go someplace safe. And I want to be very clear here one i cannot and i do not blame anybody who has left portland in the last couple of years and i know a lot of people 2020 happened and they're like i'm bouncing i'm done i'm I'm tired of this place some of them left angry and i get it i'm raising a little girl here too i get it i'm a grown man sometimes i walk down the streets and i ball my fists because somebody's doing something that i mean i'm just trying to go to kroger's you know and something happens and I'm on the defense. I get it, I totally get it. But what I would challenge you against, this is, this is my challenge, this is my word. The people are crying, return to us, stop working on the wall, it's a lost cause. Did you, do you see the wall you're building? Stop, come home. Friends, stay put. If you're leaving Portland, if you like, if you came to church in a U-Haul and you're gonna leave as soon as I'm done, that's fine you know I'm not gonna give you a hard time for it but if you're leaving because you think that Jesus has failed in Portland I, I, I encourage you I challenge you to rethink that and that's coming from somebody who wa- I want out of here I wanted to leave Portland before it was cool and I wanted to leave Portland way before I was a pastor I've wanted to leave Portland since about the age of 17 I wanted out and the Lord has made it so clear to me by force you're staying put and not only are you staying put, you're going to become a pastor. Okay, great. Well, fine. But friends, stay, stay put. Stay here. If you're thinking about leaving, or at least consider this, the gospel has not failed in Portland. I know it doesn't look good. I know it doesn't look encouraging. I, I, I sit after evening service with a lot of you at Horse Brass and at Two Brothers and all these places and... We share a meal, and, I, and I, I, I see you, I get it, and you see me, and you get it. The gospel has not failed here. Portland is not beyond redemption. It's not, it's, it's, it, it's not right to leave because there's no hope. That's a lie. That's the devil trying to trick us. That's the devil saying, what you're building up here, once a fox hops on it, timber. Down goes Frazier. That's a lie. Jesus has no competition. And it's easy to be discouraged. It's easy to feel hopeless. I know it's easy. Friends, come to 6 a.m. prayer. Join a community group. Meet with me. Meet with pastors. Meet with each other. We can bond together and share our woes and share our triumphs and share our joys and share our families and share our time and share tables. and, And just... That, that pressure valve that you hit when you're sitting with somebody and you're like, you too? Yeah, me too. It's, it's hard. That's so cathartic. It's so good. We can do that together. That's part of what we do here as a church. But don't leave because you think there's no hope. Don't believe the devil. Don't look at the wall and come to the conclusion that God has abandoned the city of Portland or abandoned the ministry here. One of the... Uh, the things that I've, I've come to understand uh, in the last week or so um, so much better is not only is it so easy to be discouraged, but it's, it's easy to bail on Jesus. It's easy to bail on the mission and, and to get distracted with all of this other stuff. You know, I was sitting with uh, some friends of mine from Union Gospel Mission this, this Thursday. We were having a Bible study in the book of Ephesians, and one of them brought up, he's like, it's just so silly that in the book of Exodus chapter 32, the Israelites' Ditch Moses. We don't know what happened to that guy, and so they build they they build this golden temple. They build this idol, and the guy you know the guys in our time was like, "Oh yeah, what a bu- bunch of boneheads." I mean, they saw you know they saw the miracles in Egypt, and then they saw the parting of the Red Sea, and still they came to the mountain, and they're like, "We well, you know it's all hope is lost now. We might as well sacrifice ourselves to these melted earrings and bracelets, worship this golden calf." And it just seems so silly, but you know what, what it's easy to forget, and we, we were talking about this, is when Moses went up on the mountain, it's described as the, the presence of the Lord came down on the mountain and was a, like a flaming cloud, It was smoke and fire, and Moses walked into it. And so when the Israelites say, we don't know what happened to Moses, like, oh, it's, that's kind of actually understandable. He walked into a flaming cloud on top of a mountain. Yeah, who knows what happened to him. He's been gone for 39 days. It kind of makes sense. I kind of have some empathy for it. I thought these guys were just stupid and now I'm realizing, no Ian, once again, you didn't read your Bible close enough. You're being a bonehead. I get it and I feel it. Walking with the Lord is hard, friends. There's no, there's no mixing words there. It's true, it's difficult and it's the best because Jesus has no competition. Like the words of Peter, he said, where else are we gonna go? What's better than this? Who's better than Jesus? What's better than his love, his mercy, his gospel? Nothing. Is it hard? Yes. Is Portland, by by and large, against it, against the gospel? Yes. Friends, the Lord is fighting with you and through you and for you. Don't bail because you think it's a lost cause. There is no hope. It would be easier someplace else. If you actually look at the biblical examples of boldness against all the odds. The denying, the people that have denied self-sufficiency and have really trusted the Lord when everything looked really bad, it's everywhere. The, the Bible says in Philippians 4 that there'll be this peace that surpasses understanding. And what part of that means is that you, you see a wall like Nehemiah's and you're like, this is a joke, is this gonna do any good? But there's, but, 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 yes, the Lord is fighting for us. As easy as it is to become cynical and scared and, and, and angry and frustrated and doubtful, there's, I, I also know that there's plenty of people in the body here and there's plenty of people around the world who look at any number of things that looks like Jesus has abandoned the ship and maybe our faith is at a loss, and they go, but no, I don't care how things look. I believe that the Lord is working for us. I believe that the Lord is fighting through the work that we're doing somehow, some way. He is, he is king. The battle already been won. And I just need to pray and work and continue forward. And what I, what I want to lift up this morning is that that is true and whenever you are living in that place even there the devil can take that faith and that trust and that peace that surpasses understanding and convince you that that peace itself is wrong and stupid and foolish and i'll, and I'll, and I'll give you this example i don't have to be as timely because this is the second service so I'm, but I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to be quick when my dad died it was a whirlwind of emotion and fear and doubt, all this stuff. And, but I, I remember this poignant moment. I had gotten off the phone with Josh White and my buddy, my buddy Joe. And Paul Anderson. And through the course of these conversations, I remembered to believe what the Bible says, not just what I feel. My dad was a Christian. Jesus died for his sins. My dad was following the Lord, absent from the body, is present with the Lord. So suddenly, my dad's death was like, well, he's in heaven. He's with Jesus. No more crying, no more death, no more hurting, no more sorrow, no more tears. Praise God. And so my dad's death became this impetus of worship because of what Jesus did. My dad's death is actually good news because he's in heaven, and the gospel swallows up death. It kills it, devours it. Jesus' death brought life, eternal life. Wow, that's incredible. And so it was this weird thing. There was this peace that surpasses understanding. It's like I should be devastated. I should be, and I am, like I'm sad. But I also don't, it's not missed on me that my dad is with the Lord, praise God. God, and in about two weeks of living in this weird place of worship, because it's weird, right? It's sort of a it's a, it's a, it's a logical complexity. My dad's dead, and I miss him, and I wish he hadn't died, but yet he's with the Lord. Praise God that death does not get the final say. Praise the Lord. In about two weeks of that, thinking that way and expressing that, talking about that, seeking counsel and sharing that with all of my friends and, and people in the church, the, de- the voice of the devil snuck in. And he said, There's, he said, you're not experiencing Philippians 4, the peace that surpasses understanding. You're experiencing the sad reality that you're kind of a sociopath. Your dad died and you just don't care. You're emotionally stunted. You have some sort of block that's happening and you should be groveling on, on, the, on the floor shoving dirt in your mouth you should be so overcome with with agony because your dad died and you don't know what it's like to live without a dad because you've never done that before that's what the devil started to do this peace that surpasses understanding my dad is with the lord and that's good news the devil turned that around and said no 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 no. you're a sociopath and you have an emotional disconnect somewhere that's actually what's going on has nothing to do with jesus it has to do with your broken biology now i know that that's not true Because I believe the Bible, not my own brain. But the devil will attack you. He will come after you. And whenever you experience this, whenever you see a wall like Nehemiah's, or you come into some sort of complexity, you get some sort of bad news, something hard happens, you look at the state of Portland, and you're like, like the condition of Portland, and you go, there's no hope. You look at the condition of the world, like there's no hope. And you pause, and you know, no, 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 no. The, The Lord is fighting for us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Even there, friends, be aware that the devil is going to come after you. The sambalots are going to rise up. The self-doubt is going to rise up. But remember this. The Lord, in his wisdom and in his mercy, he always works this way. When you consider the biblical examples, how many times he's done this. I, I have just a few here. He takes men and women and he humbles them down to the very bottom and then does something incredible through them because the glory goes to him, not to man, not to women, not to humans. The, the world, apart from God, may have big and impressive walls, but that's all they have. That's all they have. They've got their money, but that's all they have. They need Jesus. And we cannot quit telling the world about Jesus, even if they're mean to us. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is writing, and he says, Not many of you are wise. Not many of you powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish to confound the wise. He chooses what, I mean, you look at Nehemiah's wall, and it seems foolish. A fox jumps on it, it falls down. That makes sense. The Lord is using what is foolish to confound the wise. He is using weakness to exercise his strength through you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? One of my favorite stories is out of uh, Judges chapter 7. If you're familiar with it, it's the the story of of Gideon starts in Judges 6. And in Judges 7, Gideon is going to go fight, and he's got this giant army, and the Lord tells him, your army is too big. (laughs) <laughs> i mean think about that that's the, that is so antithetical to the world's wisdom you've got too much money you've got too many re, you've got too much resource you've got too much power you need less because it's the power of god and not the power of man he cuts gideon's army down twice once he cuts it down and the lord's like still it's too big so he cuts it down again. The Lord chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He says in Deuteronomy 7 of Israel, he says, I chose you not because you were more numerous than any other nation, but because you're the smallest. The Lord uses this sort of upside down reverse psychology. It's reverse psychology to us. It doesn't make sense to us. And I love it because we're not relying On Elon Musk or on Jeff Bezos or off some politician or president or leader we're relying on the resurrected Jesus and he not only works this way in us but he came and he did this himself so not only does he prove his power but he proves his trustworthiness you want to talk about someone being mocked and ridiculed the God of heaven became human flesh, he was tempted in every, every way that we are, but with no sin, word, thought, and deed, and he never sinned, he was mocked and he was ridiculed, he was spit upon, he was beaten, he was reviled, but he did not revile back, Nehemiah said, Lord, do not blot out their sin, Jesus came to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, I want to be a person who's so loaded with Jesus, and I'm not, I want to be a person who's so loaded with Jesus that when the sandballots show up, I love them. I point them to Jesus. I don't say, Lord, curse them. (laughs) I wanna love them. I've never actually prayed that, but you know what I mean. The attitude can be there. Jesus comes to earth sinless, going to the cross, Matthew 27, verse 27. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and bowing down before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took a reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe And they put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. And then the people themselves, verse 39, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple, the temple, the the big giant stones, Solomon's temple, the Herodian temple, 41 feet by 25 feet, big, heavy, you're going to destroy that. You said you would destroy that, and you would build it up again in three days. He was not talking about that temple. He was talking about his body. They derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, now save yourself. If you are really the son of God, come down from the cross. If there was ever a moment in human history where someone was being mocked and derided by people through the power of Satan, it was Jesus Christ. What are you doing? What a fool's errand. He was mocked. And he was ridiculed, and for the joy set before him, friends, he stayed, and he endured it. They mocked him, they wagged their heads at him, and so also, verse 41, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they mocked him, saying, he saved others, can he not save himself? If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. If he trusts in God, let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And friends, that voice is still alive and active today. And what's incredible about our Lord is that he has experienced it personally. You believe in God, you trust in him, and Jesus said yes. He endured for the joy set before him. He is trustworthy, whatever he's doing. And friends, I wanna be sensitive and I wanna be real. You might be looking at something in your life right now that is crumbling and you're like this is this is what i have this is it Jesus is trustworthy he's trustworthy and he's powerful he died that day but he rose again 3 days later because he was overqualified for death and that resurrection life that eternal life is what he offers to us and he's working through us the church to this very day and i will close i will close with this i'm not going to read the rest of the verses because I talked too long and we're out of time, but going back to Nehemiah, I did this last time too, I lost my place, Good night. there we go, sorry. Nehemiah chapter four, verse 14, and I looked and arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them, remember the Lord who is great and awesome, fight for your brothers and for your daughters, for your wives and for your homes. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord and work. Arm yourselves with scripture. Arm yourselves with prayer. Arm yourselves with with more and more and more robust trust and faith in who Jesus is. And be a part of the community. Notice this in verse 19 and 20, and I'll I'll close out. And I said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great. (laughs) Amen? The work is great. Their work that day was great. Our work today is great and widely spread. And we are separated all over the wall far from one another. So in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there and our God will fight for us. Friends, don't leave. Discouragement is going to come. The devil is gonna creep in and he's gonna try to lie. Hear the sound of the trumpet and come in. Come on Sundays. Go to don't don't leave. Don't leave Jesus. There's no place else to go. He has no competition. In the difficulty, in the trial, oh the, the battle is won, friends. Be a part, be a part of his work. And when it gets discouraging, the rest of us are here with you. I need you to be here with me. Josh needs you to be here for him. We need each other. We love you guys. So don't abandon your faith. Don't leave the church. And if at all possible, don't even leave Portland. Stick around. Stick around. The Lord is fighting for us. He has proven himself trustworthy. He has proven himself victorious. Jesus has no competition. And those of us who are his family and are his children, we work together for the work that he has for us. Amen? Amen. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your victory. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that we can rely upon you. Thank you that even when things from our perspective are confused and hard and seem maybe even futile and irredeemable, Lord, You went to the cross and anybody could have looked at the cross and said what good could possibly come from this you bring beauty out of ashes you bring life out of death jesus there is no one like you we love you and we trust you with everything thank you for saving us thank you for extending your gospel to the entire planet through the proclamation of evangelism and of your word help us to be a faithful people encourage those this morning lord who need encouragement lift up those who need lifting up jesus you are perfect and we trust you with everything it's your name that we pray Amen.